This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning, with butter and scallions and soy sauce, and I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code SLEEPY to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com slash SLEEPY. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Kim Hing, Emily Norris, Jeff Christensen, Casey Scott, Isaiah Hopper, and Rebecca Robbins. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, all of these wonderful names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a great site where you can support creators of the work that you like. There's cool perks for donating. Like at $5, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you extra poetry readings every month just for donating. And then you also get entered into all of our raffles where I give away books that I read on the show. Even a dollar goes a long way, and no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show. So, if Sleepy has maybe helped you wake up more refreshed the next day, consider being a part of making this podcast 
and go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, who just got a new dog. Congratulations, James. And the cover opera Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight is an early Christmas present from Medio. Over the years, there have been um, some requests for compilation shows where I put together recordings that I did over multiple episodes of the same book. And tonight, you can doze off while I read you three full hours of Greek myths written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. As many of you know, he is my favorite to read on this show. So we're going to start off with one of my favorite stories by him, which is the miraculous picture, followed by the story of the chimera, and then the story of Perseus and Medusa. I think this three-hour episode is going to be more than enough to put you to sleep and keep you asleep all night long, all the way through the holiday season. Thank you all so, so much for listening. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. The Miraculous Picture One evening in times long ago, Old Philemon and his wife Bosses sat at their cottage door, enjoying the calm and beautiful sunset. They had already eaten their frugal supper and intended now to spend a quiet hour or two before bedtime, so they talked together about their garden and their cow and their bees and their grapevine, which clambered over the cottage wall and on which the grapes were beginning to turn purple. But the rude shouts of children and the fierce barking of dogs in the village near at hand grew louder until at last it was hardly possible for Bossus and Philemon to hear each other speak. Ah, wife, cried Philemon, I fear some poor traveler is seeking hospitality among our neighbors yonder, and instead of giving him food and lodging, they've set their dogs at him as their custom is. Well a day, answered old Bossus, I do wish our neighbors felt a little more kindness for their fellow creatures and only think of the bringing up of their children in this naughty way and patting them on the head when they fling stones at strangers. Those children will never come to any good, said Philemon, shaking his white head. To tell you the truth, wife, I should not wonder if some terrible thing were to happen to all the people in the village unless they mend their manners. But, as for you and me, so long as providence affords us a crust of bread, let us be ready to give half to any poor, homeless stranger that may come along and need it. That's right, husband, said Bossus. So we will. 
These old folks, you must know, were quite poor and had to work pretty hard for a living. Old Philemon toiled diligently in his garden. Old Bossus was always busy with her distaff or making a little butter and cheese with their cow's milk or doing one thing and another about the cottage. Their food was seldom anything but bread, milk, and vegetables with sometimes a portion of honey from their beehive and now and then a bunch of grapes that had ripened against the cottage wall. But they were two of the kindest old people in the world and would cheerfully have gone without their dinners any day rather than refuse a slice of their brown loaf, a cup of new milk, and a spoonful of honey to the weary traveler who might pause before their door. They felt as if such guests had a sort of holiness and that they ought, therefore, to treat them better and more bountifully than their own selves. Their cottage stood on a rising ground at some short distance from a village which lay in a hollow valley that was about half a mile in breadth. This valley in past ages, when the world was new, had probably been a bed of the lake. There, fishes had glided to and fro in the depths, and water weeds had grown along the margin, and trees and hills had seen their reflected images in the broad and peaceful mirror. But, as the water subsided, men had cultivated their soil and built houses on it, so that it was now a fertile spot and bore no traces of the ancient lake except a very small brook which had meandered through the midst of the village and supplied the inhabitants with water. The valley had been dry land for so long that oaks sprung up and grown great and high and perished with old age and been succeeded by others as tall and stately as the first. Never was there a prettier or more fruitful valley. The very sight of the plenty around them should have made the inhabitants kind and gentle and ready to show their gratitude to Providence by doing good to their fellow creatures. But we are sorry to say the people of this lovely village were not worthy to dwell in the spot in which heaven had smiled so beneficently. They were very selfish and hard-hearted people and had no pity for the poor nor sympathy with the homeless. They would only have laughed had anybody told them that human beings owe a debt of love to one another because there is no other method of paying the debt of love and care which all of us owe to Providence. You will hardly believe what I am going to tell you. These naughty people taught their children to be no better than themselves and used to clap their hands by way of encouragement when they saw the little boys and girls after some poor stranger shouting at his heels and pelting him with stones. They kept large and fierce dogs and whenever a traveler ventured to show himself in the village street this pack of disagreeable curs scampered to meet him barking, snarling and showing their teeth. They would seize him by his leg or by his clothes just as it happened. And if he were ragged, when he came, he was generally a pitiable object before he had the time to run away. This was a very terrible thing to poor travelers, as you may suppose, especially when they are chanced to be sick or feeble or lame or old 
such persons, if they once knew how badly these unkind people and their unkind children and curs were in the habit of behaving, would go miles and miles out of their way rather than try to pass through the village again. What made the matter seem worse, if possible, was what when rich persons came in their chariots or riding on beautiful horses with their servants and rich liveries attending on them, nobody could be more civil and obsequious than the inhabitants of the village. They would take off their hats and make the humblest bows you ever saw. If the children were rude, they were pretty certain to get their ears boxed. And as for the dogs, if a single cur in the pack presumed to yell, his master instantly beat him with a club and tied him up without any supper. This would have been all very well, only it proved that the villagers cared much about the money that a stranger had in his pocket, and nothing whatever for the human soul, which lives equally in the beggar and the prince. So now you can understand why old Philemon spoke so sorrowfully when he heard the shouts of the children and the barking of the dogs at the farther extremity of the village street. There was a confused din which lasted a good while and seemed to pass quite through the breath of the valley. I never heard the dogs so loud, observed the good old man. Nor the children so rude, answered his good wife. They sat shaking their heads one to another while the noise came nearer and nearer until at the foot of the little eminence on which their cottage stood they saw two travelers approaching on foot. Close behind them came the fierce dogs snarling at their heels. A little farther off ran a crowd of children who sent up shrill cries and flung stones at the two strangers with all their might. Once or twice the younger of the two men, he was a slender and very active figure, turned about and drove back the dogs with a staff which he carried in his hand. His companion, who was a very tall person, walked calmly along as if disdaining to notice either the naughty children or the pack of curs, whose manners the children seemed to imitate. Both of the travelers were very humbly clad, and looked as if they might not have the money enough in their pockets to pay for a night's lodging. And this, I am afraid, was the reason why the villagers had allowed their children and dogs to treat them so rudely. Come, wife, said Philemon to Bossus. Let us go and meet these poor people. No doubt they feel almost too heavy-hearted to climb the hill. Go you and meet them, answered Bossus, while I make haste within doors and see whether we can get them anything for supper. A comfortable bowl of bread and milk would do wonders towards raising their spirits. Accordingly, she hastened into the cottage. Philemon, on his own part, went forward and extended his hand with so hospitable an aspect that there was no need of saying what nevertheless he did say in the heartiest tone imaginable. Welcome, strangers, welcome. Thank you, replied the younger of the two, in a lively kind of way, notwithstanding his weariness and trouble. 
This is quite another greeting than we have met with yonder, in the village. Pray, why do you live in such a bad neighborhood? Ah, observed old Philemon, with a quiet and benign smile. Providence put me here, I hope, among other reasons, in order that I may make you what amends I can for the inhospitality of my neighbors. Well said, O oh father, cried the traveler, laughing. And if truth must be told, my companion and myself need some amends. Those children, the little rascals, have bespattered us finely with their mud ball, and one of the curs has torn my cloak, which was ragged enough already. But I took him across the muzzle with my staff. I think you may have heard him yelp, even thus far. <sniffs> even thus far off. Philemon was glad to see him in such good spirits, nor indeed would he have fancied by the traveler's look and manner that he was weary with a long day's journey, besides being disheartened by rough treatment at the end of it. He was dressed in rather an odd way, with a sort of cap on his head, the brim of which stuck out over both ears, though it was a summer evening. He wore a cloak, which he kept wrapped closely about him perhaps because his undergarments were shabby. Philemon perceived, too, that he had on a singular pair of shoes. But, as it is now growing dusk, and as the old man's eyesight was none the sharpest, he could not precisely tell in what the strangeness consisted. One thing certainly seemed queer. The traveler was so wonderfully light and active that it appeared as if his feet sometimes rose above the ground, of their own accord, or could only be kept down by an effort. I used to be light-footed in my mouth, said Philemon to the traveler, and I always found my feet grow heavier towards nightfall. There is nothing like a good staff to help me along, answered the stranger, and I happen to have an excellent one, as you see. This staff, in fact, was the oddest-looking staff that Philemon had ever beheld. It was made of olive wood, and it had something like a little pair of wings near the top. Two snakes carved in wood were represented as twining themselves about the staff and were so skillfully executed that old Philemon, whose eyes, you know, were getting rather dim, almost thought them alive, and then he could see them wriggling and twisting. A curious piece of work, sure enough, said he. A staff with wings. It would be an excellent kind of stick for a little boy to ride astride of. By this time, Philemon and his two guests had reached the cottage door. Friends, said the old man, sit down and rest yourselves here on this bench. My good wife, Bosses, has gone to see what you can have for supper. We are poor folks, but you should be welcome to whatever we have in the cupboard. The younger stranger threw himself carelessly on the bench, letting his staff fall as he did so. And here happened something rather marvelous, though trifling enough too. The staff seemed to get up from the ground of its own accord, and spreading its little pair of wings, it half hopped, half flew, and leaned itself against the wall of the cottage. There it stood, quite still, 
except that the snakes continued to wriggle. But in my private opinion, old Philemon's eyesight had been playing him tricks again. Before he could ask any questions, the elder stranger drew his attention from the wonderful staff by speaking to him. Was there not, asked the stranger, in a remarkably deep tone of voice, a lake in very ancient times covering the spot where now stands yonder village? Not in my day, friend, answered Philemon, and yet I am an old man, as you see. There are always the fields and meadows, just as they are now, in the old trees and the little stream murmuring through the midst of the valley. My father nor his father before him, ever saw it otherwise, so far as I know, and doubtless it will still be the same when old Philemon shall be gone and forgotten. That is more than can be safely foretold, observed the stranger. There was something very stern in his deep voice. He shook his head, too, so that his dark and heavy curls were shaken with the movement. Since the inhabitants of yonder village have forgotten the affections and sympathies of their nature, it were better that the lake should be rippling over their dwellings again. The traveler looked so stern that Philemon was really almost frightened, the more so that at his frown the twilight seemed suddenly to grow darker, and that when he shook his head there was a roll as of thunder in the air. But, in a moment afterwards, the stranger's face became so kindly and mild that the old man quite forgot his terror. Nevertheless, he could not help feeling that this elder traveler must be no ordinary personage, although he happened now to be attired so humbly and to be journeying on foot. Not that Philemon fancied him a prince in disguise or any character of that sort, but rather some exceedingly wise man who went about the world in this poor garb, despising wealth and all worldly objects and seeking everywhere to add a mite to his wisdom. His idea appeared more probable because when Philemon raised his eyes to the stranger's face, he seemed to see more thought there in one look than he could have studied out in a lifetime. While Bossus was getting the supper, the travelers both began to talk very sociably with Philemon. The younger, indeed, was extremely loquacious and made such shrewd and witty remarks that the good old man continually burst out a-laughing and pronounced him the merriest fellow whom he had seen for many a day. Pray, my young friend, said he, as he grew familiar together, what may I call your name? Why, I am very nimble, as you see, answered the traveler. So, if you call me Quicksilver, the name will fit tolerably well. Quicksilver, Quicksilver, repeated Philemon, looking in the traveler's face to see if he were making fun of him. It is a very odd name. And your companion there? Has he a stranger one? You might ask the thunder to tell it to you replied Quicksilver, putting on a mysterious look. No other voice is loud enough. 
This remark, whether it was serious or in jest, might have caused Philemon to conceive a very great awe of the elder stranger, if, on venturing to gaze at him, he had not beheld so much beneficence in his visage. But undoubtedly, he was the grandest figure that ever sat so humbly beside a cottage door. When the stranger conversed, it was with gravity, in such a way that Philemon felt irresistibly moved to tell him everything which he had most at heart. This is always the feeling that people have when they meet with anyone wise enough to comprehend all their good and evil and to despise not a little of it. But Philemon, simple and kind-hearted old man that he was, has not many secrets to disclose. He talked, however, quite garrulously about the events of his past life in the whole course of which he had never been a score of miles from this very spot. His wife, Bossus, and himself had dwelt in the cottage from their youth upward, earning their bread by honest labor, always poor but still contented. He told what excellent butter and cheese Bossus made, and how nice were the vegetables which he raised in his garden. He said, too, that because they loved one another so very much, it was the wish of both that death might not separate them, but that they should die as they had lived, together. As the stranger listened, a smile beamed over his countenance and made its expression as sweet as it was grand. But you are a good old man, said he to Philemon, and you have a good old wife to be here help me. It is fit that your wish be granted. And it seemed that Philemon just then, as if the sunset clouds threw up a bright flash from the west and kindled a sudden light in the sky. Bosses had now got supper ready and coming to the door began to make apologies for the poor fare which she was forced to set before her guests. Had we known you were coming, said she, my good man and myself would have gone without a morsel, rather than you should lack a better supper. But I took the most part of today's milk to make cheese, and our last loaf is already half eaten. Ah, me, I never feel the sorrow of being poor, save when a poor traveler knocks at my door. All will be very well. Do not trouble yourself, my good dame replied the elder stranger kindly. An honest, hearty welcome to a guest works miracles with the fare and is capable of turning the coarsest food to nectar and ambrosia. A welcome you shall have, cried Bosses, and likewise a little honey that we happen to have left and a bunch of purple grapes besides. Why, Mother Bosses, it is a feast, exclaimed Quicksilver, laughing. An absolute feast, and you shall see how bravely I will play my part in it. I think I never felt hungrier in my life. Mercy on us, whispered Bosses to her husband. If the young man has such terrible appetite, I am afraid there will not be half enough for supper. They all went into the cottage. And now, my little auditors, 
Shall I tell you something that will make you open your eyes very wide? Is really one of the oddest circumstances in the whole story. Quicksilver's staff, you recollect, had set itself up against the wall of the cottage. Well, when its master entered the door, leaving this wonderful staff behind, what should it do but immediately spread its little wings and go hopping and fluttering up the doorsteps? Tap, tap went the staff on the kitchen floor, nor did it rest until it had stood itself on the end with the greatest gravity and decorum beside Quicksilver's chair. Old Philemon, however, as well as his wife, was so taken up in attending to their guests that no notice was given to what the staff had been about. As bosses had said, there was but a scanty supper for the two hungry travelers. In the middle of the table was the remnant of a brown loaf with a piece of cheese on one side of it and a dish of honeycomb on the other. There was a pretty good bunch of grapes for each of the guests. A moderately sized earthen pitcher, nearly full of milk, stood at the corner of the board. And when Bossus had filled the two bowls and set them before the strangers, only a little milk remained in the bottom of the pitcher. Alas, it is a very sad business when a bountiful heart finds itself pinched and squeezed among narrow circumstances. Poor Bossus kept wishing that she might starve for a week to come if it were possible, by so doing, to provide these hungry folks with a more plentiful supper. And, since the supper was so exceedingly small, she could not help wishing that their appetites had not been quite so large. Why, at their very first sitting down, the travelers both drank off all the milk in their two bowls at a draft. A little more milk, kind mother bosses, if you please, said Quicksilver. The day has been hot, and I am very much athirst. Now, my dear people, answered bosses in great confusion, I am so sorry and ashamed, but the truth is, there's hardly a drop more milk in the pitcher. Oh, husband, husband, why didn't we go without our supper? Why, it appears to me, starting up from the table and taking the picture by the handle, it really appears to me that matters are not quite so bad as you represent them. Here is certainly more milk in the pitcher. So saying, and to the vast astonishment of bosses, he proceeded to fill not only his bowl, but his companions likewise from the pitcher that was supposed to be almost empty. The good woman could scarcely believe her eyes. She had certainly poured out nearly all the milk and had peeped in afterwards and seen the bottom of the pitcher and she set it down upon the table. But I am old, thought bosses to herself, and I have to be forgetful. I suppose I must have made a mistake. At all events, the pitcher cannot help being empty now after filling the bowls twice over. What excellent milk, observed Quicksilver, after quaffing the contents of the second bowl. Excuse me, my kind hostess, but I must ask you for a little more. Now bosses of the scene, as plainly as she could, see anything. The Quicksilver had turned the pitcher upside down, and consequently had poured out every drop of milk, and filling the last bowl. 
Of course, there cannot be possibly any left. However, in order to let him know precisely how the case was, she lifted the pitcher and made a gesture as if pouring milk into Quicksilver's bowl, but without the remotest idea that any milk would stream forth. What was her surprise, therefore, when such an abundant cascade fell bubbling into the bowl that it was immediately filled to the brim and overflowed upon the table? The two snakes that were twisted about Quicksilver's staff, but neither Bossis nor Philemon happened to observe this circumstance, stretched out their heads and began to lap up the spilt milk. And then what a delicious fragrance the milk had. It seemed as if Philemon's only cow must have pastured that day on the richest herbage that could be found anywhere in the world. And I only wish that each of you, my beloved little souls, could have a bowl of such nice milk at supper time. And now a slice of your brown loaf, Mother Bosses, said Quicksilver, and a little of that honey. Bosses cut him a slice accordingly, and though the loaf, when she and her husband ate of it, had been rather too dry and crusty to be palatable, it was now light and moist as if but a few hours out of the oven. Tasting a crumb which had fallen on the table, she found it more delicious than the bread ever was before, and could hardly believe that it was a loaf of her own kneading and baking. Yet, what other loaf could it possibly be? But oh, the honey. I may just as well let it alone without trying to describe how exquisitely it smelt and looked. Its color was that of the purest and most transparent gold, and it had the odor of a thousand flowers but of such flowers as never grew in the earthly garden, and to seek which the bees must have flown high above the clouds. The wonder is that, after alighting on a flower bed of so delicious a fragrance and a mortal bloom, they should have been content to fly down again to their hive in Philemon's garden. Never was such a honey tasted, seen, or smelled. The perfume floated around the kitchen and made it so delightful that had you closed your eyes you would instantly have forgotten the low ceiling and the smoky walls and have fancied yourself in an arbor with celestial honeysuckles creeping over it. Although good Mother Bosses was a simple old dame, she could not but think that there was something rather out of the common way in all that had been going on. So, after helping the guests to bread and honey, and laying a bunch of grapes by each of their plates, she sat down by Philemon, and told him what she had seen in a whisper. Did you ever hear the like, asked she. No, I never did, answered Philemon, with a smile. And I rather think, my dear old wife, you have been walking about in some sort of dream. If I had poured out the milk, I should have seen through the business at once. There happened to be a little more in the pitcher than you thought, that is all. Ah, husband, said Bosses, say what you will. These are very uncommon people. Well, well, replied Philemon, still smiling. Perhaps they are. They certainly do look as if they had seen better days, and I am heartily glad 
to see them making so comfortable a supper. Each of the guests had now taken his bunch of grapes upon his plate. Bosses who rubbed her eyes in order to see more clearly was of the opinion that the clusters had grown larger and richer and that each separate grape seemed to be on the point of bursting with ripe juice. It was entirely a mystery to her how such grapes could ever have produced from the old stunted vine that climbed against the cottage wall. Very admirable grapes, these, observed Quicksilver, as he swallowed one after another without apparently diminishing his cluster. Pray, my good host, whence did you gather them? From my own vine, answered Philemon. You may see one of its branches twisting across the window yonder, but wife and I never thought the grapes were very fine ones. I never tasted better, said the guest. Another cup of this delicious milk, if you please, and I shall then have supped better than a prince. This time old Philemon bestirred himself and took up the pitcher, for he was curious to discover whether there was any reality in the marvels which bosses had whispered to him. He knew that his good old wife was incapable of falsehood, but that she was seldom mistaken in what she supposed to be true. But this was so very singular a case that he wanted to see with his own eyes. On taking up the pitcher, therefore, he slyly peeped into it and was fully satisfied that it contained not so much as a single drop. All at once, however, he beheld a little white fountain which gushed up from the bottom of the pitcher and speedily filled it to the brim with foaming and deliciously fragrant milk. It was lucky that Philemon, in his surprise, did not drop the miraculous pitcher from his hand. Who are ye, wonder-working strangers, cried he, even more bewildered than his wife had been. Your guests, my good Philemon, and your friends, replied the elder traveler, in his mild, deep voice that had something at once sweet and awe-inspiring in it. Give me likewise a cup of milk, and may your pitcher never be empty for kind bosses and yourself any more than for the needy wayfarer. The supper being now over, the strangers requested to be shown to their place of repose. The old people would gladly have talked with them a little longer and have expressed the wonder which they felt and their delight at finding the poor and meager supper proved so much better and more abundant than they had hoped. But the elder traveler had inspired them with such reverence that they dared not ask him any questions. And when Philemon drew Quicksilver aside and inquired how under the sun a fountain of milk could have gotten into the old earthen pitcher, his latter personage pointed to his staff. There is the whole mystery of the affair, quoth Quicksilver, and if you can make it out, I'll thank you to let me know. I can't tell what to make of my staff, who's always playing such odd tricks as this, sometimes getting me a supper, and quite as often stealing it away. If I had any faith in such nonsense, I should say the sick is bewitched. He said no more, but looked so slyly in their faces that they rather fancied he was laughing at them 
The magic staff went hopping at his heels as Quicksilver quitted the room. When left alone, the good old couple spent some little time in conversation about the events of the evening and then lay down on the floor and fell fast asleep. They'd given up their sleeping room to the guests and had no other bed for themselves save these planks which I wish had been so soft as their own hearts. The old man and his wife were stirring betimes in the morning and the strangers likewise arose with the sun and made their preparations to depart. Philemon hospitably entreated them to remain a little longer until bosses could milk the cow and bake a cake upon the hearth and perhaps find them a few fresh eggs for breakfast. The guests, however, seemed to think it better to accomplish a good part of their journey before the heat of the day should come on. They, therefore, persisted in setting out immediately, but asked Philemon and Bosses to walk forth with them a short distance and show them the road where they should take. So they all four issued from the cottage, chatting together like old friends. It was very remarkable indeed how familiar the old couple insensibly grew with the elder traveler and how their good and simple spirits melted into his even as two drops of water would melt into the illimitable ocean. As for Quicksilver, with his keen, quick, laughing wits, he appeared to discover every little thought that but peeped into their minds before they suspected themselves. They sometimes wished, it is true, that he had not been so quick-witted, and also that he would fling away his staff, which looked so mysteriously mischievous with the snakes always writhing about it. But then again, Quicksilver showed himself so very good-humored that they would have been rejoiced to keep him in their cottage, staff, snakes, and all, every day, and the whole day long. Ah, me, well a day, exclaimed Philemon, when they had walked a little way from their door. If our neighbors only knew what a blessed thing it is to show hospitality to strangers, they would tie up all their dogs and never allow their children to fling another stone. It is a sin and a shame for them to behave so, that it is, cried old bosses vehemently, and I mean to go this very day and tell some of them what naughty people they are. I fear, remarked Quicksilver, slyly smiling, that you will find none of them at home. The elder traveler's brow just then assumed such a grave, stern, and awful grandeur, yet serene with all, that neither Bossus nor Philemon dared to speak a word. They gazed reverently into his face, as if they had been gazing at the sky. When men do not feel towards the humblest stranger, as if he were a brother, said the traveler, in tones so deep that they sounded like those of an organ, they are unworthy to exist on earth, which was created as the abode of a great human brotherhood. And by and by, my dear old people, cried Quicksilver, with the liveliest look of fun and mischief in his eyes, where is this same village you talk about? On which side of us does it lie? Methinks I do not see it hereabouts. Philemon and his wife turned towards the valley, 
where at sunset only a day before they had seen the meadows, the houses, the gardens, the clumps of trees, the wide green margin of the street, the children playing in it, and all the tokens of business, enjoyment, and prosperity. But what was their astonishment? There was no longer any appearance of a village. Even the fertile vale, in the hollow of which it lay, had ceased to have existence. And instead, they beheld the broad, blue surface of a lake, which filled the great basin of the valley, from brim to brim, and reflected the surrounding hills in its bosom, with as tranquil an image as if it had been there ever since the creation of the world. For an instant, the lake remained perfectly smooth. Then, a little breeze sprang up and caused the water to dance, glitter and sparkle in the early sunbeams, and to dash with the pleasant rippling murmur against the hither shore. The lake seemed so strangely familiar that the old couple were greatly perplexed and felt as if they could only be dreaming about a village having lain there. But the next moment, they remembered the vanished dwellings and the faces and characters of the inhabitants far too distinctly for a dream. The village had been there yesterday and now was gone. Alas, cried these kind-hearted old people, what has become of our poor neighbors? They exist no longer as men and women, said the elder traveler in his grand and deep voice, while a roll of thunder seemed to echo in the distance. There was neither use nor beauty in such a life as theirs, for they never softened or sweetened the hard lot of mortality by the exercise of kindly affections between man and man. They retain no image of the better life in their bosoms. Therefore, the lake, that was of old, has spread itself forth again to reflect the sky. And as for those foolish people, said Quicksilver, with his mischievous smile, they are all transformed into fishes. There needed but little change, for they were already a scaly set of rascals and the coldest blooded beings on earth. So, kind mother bosses, whenever you or your husband have an appetite for a dish of broiled trout, he can out throw a line and pull out half a dozen of your old neighbors. Ah, cried bosses, shuddering, I would not for the world but one of them on the gridiron. No, added Philemon, making a wry face, we could never relish them. As for you, good Philemon, continued the elder traveler, and you, kind bosses, you, with your scanty means, have mingled so much heartfelt hospitality with your entertainment of the homeless stranger that the milk became an inexhaustible fount of nectar, and the brown loaf and the honey were ambrosia. Thus the divinities have feasted at your board of the same viands that supply their banquets on Olympus. You have done well, my dear old friends. Wherefore request whatever favor you have most at heart, and it is granted. Philemon and Bosses looked at one another, and then, I know not which of the two it was who spoke, but that one uttered the desire 
of both of their hearts. Let us live together while we live and leave the world at the same instant when we die, for we have always loved one another. Be it so, replied the stranger with majestic kindness. Now look towards your cottage. They did so. But what was their surprise on beholding a tall edifice of white marble with a wide open portal occupying the spot where their humble residence had so lately stood? There is your home, said the stranger, beneficently smiling on them both. Exercise your hospitality in yonder palace as freely as in the poor hovel to which you welcomed us last evening. The old folks fell on their knees to thank him. But behold, neither he nor Quicksilver was there. So Philemon and Bosses took up their residence in the marble palace and spent their time with vast satisfaction to themselves in making everybody jolly and comfortable who happened to pass by. The milk pitcher, I must not forget to say, retained its marvelous quality of being never empty when it was desirable to have it full. Whenever an honest, good-humored, and free-hearted guest took a draft from this pitcher, he invariably found it the sweetest and most invigorating fluid that ever ran down his throat. But if a cross and disagreeable curmudgeon happened to sip, he was pretty certain to twist his visage into a hard knot and pronounce it a pitcher of sour milk. Thus the old couple lived in their palace a great, great while, and grew older and older, and very old indeed. At length, however, there came a summer morning when Philemon and Bosses failed to make their appearance, as on the other mornings, with one hospitable smile overspreading both their pleasant faces, to invite the guests of overnight to breakfast. The guests searched everywhere from top to bottom of the spacious palace and all to no purpose. But after a great deal of perplexity they espied in front of the portal two venerable trees which nobody could remember to have seen the day before. Yet there they stood with their roots fastened deep into the soil and a huge breath of foliage overshadowing the whole front of the edifice. One was an oak, and the other a linden tree. Their boughs, was strange and beautiful to see, were intertwined together and embraced one another so that each tree seemed to live in the other tree's bosom, much more than its own. While the guests were marveling how these trees, that must have required at least a century to grow, could have come to be so tall and venerable in a single night, a breeze sprang up and set their intermingled boughs astir. And then there was a deep, broad murmur in the air as if the two mysterious trees were speaking. I am old Philemon, murmured the oak. I am old Bosses, murmured the linden tree. But as the breeze grew stronger, the trees both spoke at once. Philemon, Bosses, Bosses, Philemon, as if one were both and both were one, and talking together in the depth of their mutual heart, 
was plain enough to perceive that the good old couple had renewed their age and were now to spend a quiet and delightful hundred years or so, Philemon as an oak and Bosses as a linden tree. And oh, what a hospitable shade did they fling around them. Whenever a wayfarer paused beneath it, he heard a pleasant whisper of the leaves above his head and wondered how this sound should so much resemble words like these. Welcome, welcome, dear traveler, welcome. And some kind soul that knew what would have pleased old bosses and old Philemon best built a circular seat around both their trunks where, for a great while afterwards, the weary and the hungry and the thirsty used to repose themselves and quaff milk abundantly out of the miraculous pitcher. And I wish, for all of our sakes, that we had the pitcher here now. The Chimera Once, in the old, old times, for all the strange things which I tell you about happened long before anybody can remember, a fountain gushed out of a hillside in the marvelous land of Greece. And for aught I know, after so many thousand years, it is still gushing out of the very self-same spot. At any rate, there was the pleasant fountain welling freshly forth and sparkling down the hillside in the golden sunset when a handsome young man named Bellerophon drew near its margin. In his hand he held a bridle, studded with brilliant gems, and adorned with a golden bit. Seeing an old man and another of middle age and a little boy near the fountain, and likewise a maiden, who was dipping up some of the water in a pitcher, he paused and begged that he might refresh himself with a draft. This is very delicious water, he said to the maiden, as he rinsed and filled her pitcher after drinking out of it. Will you be kind enough to tell me whether the fountain has any name? Yes, it is called the Fountain of Pyrene, answered the maiden. And then she added, My grandmother has told me that this clear fountain was once a beautiful woman, and when her son was killed by the arrows of the huntress Diana, she melted all away into tears. And so the water which you can find so cool and sweet, is the sorrow of that poor mother's heart. I should not have dreamed, observed the young stranger, that so clear a wellspring with its gush and gurgle and its cheery dance out of the shade into the sunlight and so much as one teardrop in its bosom. And this, then, is Pyrene. I thank you, pretty maiden, for telling me its name. I have come from a faraway country to find this very spot. A middle-aged country fellow, he had driven his cow to drink out of the spring, stared hard at young Bellerophon and at the handsome bridle which he carried in his hand. The water courses must be getting low, friend, in your part of the world, remarked he, if you come so far only to find the fountain of Pyrene. But pray, 
Have you lost your horse? I see you carry the bridle in your hand. A very pretty one it is, with that double row of bright stones upon it. If the horse was as fine as the bridle, you are much to be pitied for losing him. I've lost no horse, said Bellerophon, with a smile, but I happen to be seeking a very famous one, which, as wise people have informed me, must be found hereabouts, if anywhere. Do you know whether the winged horse Pegasus still haunts the fountain of Pyrene, as it used to do in your forefathers' days? But then the country fellow laughed. Some of you, my little friends, have probably heard that this Pegasus was a snow-white steed with beautiful silvery wings who spent most of his time on the summit of Mount Helicon. He was as mild and as swift and as buoyant in his flight through the air as any eagle that ever soared into the clouds. There was nothing else like him in the world. He had no mate. He never had been backed or bridled by a master, and for many a long year he led a solitary and happy life. Oh, how fine a thing it is to be a winged horse, sleeping at night, as he did, on a lofty mountaintop, and passing the greater part of the day in the air. Pegasus seemed hardly to be a creature of the earth. Whenever he was seen, up, very high above people's heads, with the sunshine on his silvery wings. You would have thought that he belonged to the sky, that skimming a little too low, he had got astray among our mists and vapors and was seeking his way back again. It was very pretty to behold him plunge into the fleecy bosom of a bright cloud and be lost in it for a moment or two and then break forth from the other side. Or in a sullen rainstorm, and there was a gray pavement of clouds over the whole sky. It would have sometimes happened that the winged horse descended right through it, and the glad light of the upper region would gleam after him. In another instant, it is true, both Pegasus and the pleasant light would be gone away together. But anyone who was fortunate enough to see this wondrous spectacle felt cheerful the whole day afterwards and as much longer as the storm lasted. In the summertime, and in the beautifulest of weather, Pegasus often alighted on the solid earth, and closing his silvery wings would gallop over the hill and dale for pastime, as fleetly as the wind. Oftener than in any other place, he had been seen near the fountain of Pyrene, drinking the delicious water, or rolling himself upon the soft grass of the margin. Sometimes, too, but Pegasus was very dainty in his food, he would crop up a few of the clover blossoms that happened to be the sweetest. To the fountain of Pyrene, therefore, people's great-grandfathers had been in the habit of going as long as they were youthful and retained their faith in winged horses in hopes of getting a glimpse at the beautiful Pegasus. But of late years, he had been very seldom seen. Indeed, there were many of the country folks, dwelling within half an hour's walk of the fountain, who had never beheld Pegasus, and did not believe that there was any such creature in existence. 
The country fellow, to whom Bellerophon was speaking, chanced to be one of those incredulous persons. And that was the reason why he laughed. Pegasus, indeed, cried he, turning up his nose as high as such a flat nose could be turned up. Pegasus, indeed. A winged horse, truly. Why, friend, are you in your senses? Of what use would wings be to a horse? Could he drag the plow so well, think you? To be sure, there might be a little saving in the expense of shoes. But then... How would a man like to see his horse flying out of the stable window? Yes, or whisking him above the clouds when he only wanted to ride to mill. No, no, I don't believe in Pegasus. There never was such a ridiculous kind of horsefowl made. I have some reason to think otherwise, said Bellerophon quietly. And then he turned to an old gray man was leaning on a staff and listening very attentively with his head stretched forward and one hand at his ear because for the last twenty years he had been getting rather deaf. And what say you, venerable sir, inquired he. In your younger days, I should imagine, you must frequently have seen the winged steed. Ah, young stranger, my memory is very poor said the aged man. When I was a lad, if I remember rightly, I used to believe there was such a horse, and so did everybody else. But nowadays I hardly know what to think, and very seldom think about the winged horse at all. If I ever saw the creature, it was a long, long while ago. And to tell you the truth, I doubt whether I ever did see him. One day, to be sure, when I was quite a youth, I remember seeing some hoof tramps round the brink of the fountain. Pegasus might have made those hoof marks, and so might some other horse. And have you never seen him, my fair maiden? asked Bella Rofin to the girl, who stood with the pitcher on her head while this talk went on. You certainly could see Pegasus, if anybody can, for your eyes are very bright. Once I thought I saw him, replied the maiden, with a smile and a blush. It was either Pegasus or a large white bird, a very great way up in the air. And one other time, as I was coming to the fountain with my pitcher, I heard a neigh. Oh, such a brisk and melodious neigh as that was. My very heart leaped with delight at the sound. But it startled me, nevertheless so that I ran home without filling my pitcher. That was truly a pity, said Bellerophon. And he turned to the child, whom I mentioned at the beginning of the story, and who was gazing at him, as children are apt to gaze at strangers, with his rosy mouth wide open. Well, my little fellow, cried Bellerophon, playfully pulling one of his curls, I suppose you have often seen the winged horse. That I have, answered the child, very readily. I saw him yesterday, and many times before. You are a fine little man, said Bellerophon, drawing the child closer to him. Come, tell me all about it. Why, replied the child, 
I often come here to sail little boats in the fountain, to gather pretty pebbles out of its basin. And sometimes, when I look down into the water, I see the image of a winged horse and the picture of the sky that is there. I wish he would come down and take me on his back and let me ride him up to the moon. But if I so much as stir to look at him, he flies far away out of sight. And Bellerophon put his faith in the child who had seen the image of Pegasus in the water and in the maiden who had heard him neigh so melodiously rather than in the middle-aged clown who believed only in cart horses or in the old man who had forgotten the beautiful things of his youth. Therefore, he haunted about the fountain of Pyrene for a great many days afterwards. He kept continually on the watch, looking upward at the sky or else down into the water, hoping forever that he should see either the reflected image of the winged horse with a marvelous reality. He held the bridle, with its bright gems and golden bit, always ready in his hand. The rustic people, who dealt in the neighborhood, and drove their cattle to the fountain to drink, would often laugh at poor Bellerophon, and sometimes take him pretty severely to task. They told him that an able-bodied young man, like himself, ought to have better business than to be wasting his time in such an idle pursuit. They offered to sell him a horse, and if he wanted one, and when Bellerophon declined the purchase, they tried to drive a bargain with him for his fine bridle. Even the country boys thought him so very foolish that they used to have a great deal of sport about him and were rude enough not to care a fig although Bellerophon saw and heard it. One little urchin, for example, would play Pegasus and cut the oddest imaginable capers by way of flying while one of his schoolfellows would scamper after him, holding forth a twist of bulrushes, which was intended to represent Bellerophon's ornamental bridle. But the gentle child, who had seen the picture of Pegasus in the water, comforted the young stranger more than all the naughty boys could torment him. The dear little fellow, in his play hours, often sat down beside him, and without speaking a word would look down into the fountain and up towards the sky with so innocent a faith that Bellerophon could not help feeling encouraged. Now you will, perhaps, wish to be told why it was that Bellerophon had undertaken to catch the winged horse we shall find no better opportunity to speak about this matter than while he is waiting for Pegasus to appear. If I were to relate the whole of Bellerophon's previous adventure, it might easily grow into a very long story. It will be quite enough to say that in a certain country of Asia, a terrible monster called a chimera had made its appearance and was doing more mischief than could be talked about between now and sunset. According to the best accounts which I have been able to obtain, this chimera was nearly, if not quite, the ugliest and most poisonous creature, and strangest and unaccountablest, and the hardest to fight with, and most difficult to run away from, that ever came out of the earth's inside. 
It had a tail like a boa constrictor. Its body was like I do not care what. It had three separate heads, one of which was a lion's, the second a goat's, and the third an abominably great snake's. And a hot blast of fire came flaming out of each of its three mouths. Being an earthly monster, I doubt whether it had any wings. But, wings or no, it ran like a goat and a lion and wriggled along like a serpent and thus contrived to make about as much speed as all the three together. Oh, the mischief and mischief and mischief that this naughty creature did. With its flaming breath, it could set a forest on fire or burn up a field of grain or for that matter a village with all its fences and houses. It laid waste to a whole country round about and used to eat people up and animals alive and cook them afterwards in the burning oven of its stomach. Mercy on us, little children. I hope neither you nor I will ever happen to meet the chimera. Or the hateful beast, if a beast we can anywise call it, was doing all these horrible things. It so chanced that Bellerophon came to that part of the world on a visit to the king. The king's name was Iobates, and Lycia was the country which he ruled over. Bellerophon was one of the bravest youths in the world. He desired nothing so much as to do some valiant, and desired nothing so much as to do some valiant and beneficent deed, such as would make all mankind admire and love him. In those days, the only way for a young man to distinguish himself was by fighting battles, either with the enemies of his country, or with wicked giants, or with troublesome dragons or with wild beasts, when he could find nothing more dangerous to encounter. King Iobates, perceiving the courage of his youthful visitor, proposed to him to go fight the chimera, which everybody else was afraid of, and which, unless it should be soon killed, was likely to convert Lycia into a desert. Bellerophon hesitated not a moment, but assured the king that he would either slay his dreaded chimera or perish in the attempt. But in the first place, as the monster was so prodigiously swift, he bethought himself that he should never win the victory by fighting on foot. The wisest thing he could do, therefore, was to get the very best and fleetest horse that could anywhere be found. And what other horse in all the world was half so fleet as the marvelous horse Pegasus, who had wings as well as legs, and was even more active in the air than on the earth. To be sure, a great many people deny that there was any such horse. To be sure, a great many people deny that there was any such horse with wings, and said that the stories about him were all poetry and nonsense. But wonderful as it appeared, Bellerophon believed that Pegasus was a real steed and hoped that he find himself might be fortunate enough to find him. And, once fairly mounted on his back, he would be able to fight the chimera at better advantage. And this was the purpose 
with which he had traveled from Lycia to Greece, and had brought the beautifully ornamented bridle in his hand. It was an enchanted bridle. If he could only succeed in putting the golden bit into the mouth of Pegasus, the winged horse would be submissive and would own Bellerophon for his master and fly whithersoever he might choose to turn the reins. But indeed, it was a wary and anxious time while Bellerophon waited and waited for Pegasus in hopes that he would come and drink at the fountain of Pyrene. He was afraid lest King Iobates should imagine that he had fled from the chimera. It pained him too to think of how much mischief the monster was doing while he himself, instead of fighting it, was compelled to sit idly pouring over the bright waters of Pyrene as they gushed out of the sparkling sand. And as Pegasus came thither so seldom in these latter years and scarcely alighted there more than once in a lifetime, Bellerophon feared that he might grow an old man and have no strength left in his arms nor courage in his heart before the winged horse would appear. Oh, how heavily passes the time while an adventurous youth is yearning to do his part in life and to gather in the harvest of his renown. How hard a lesson it is to wait. Our life is brief, and how much of it is spent in teaching us only this. Well was it for Bellerophon that the gentle child had grown so very fond of him and was never weary of keeping him company. Every morning the child gave him new hope to put in his bosom instead of yesterday's withered one. Dear Bellerophon, he would cry, looking up hopefully into his face, I think we shall see Pegasus today. At length, if it had not been for the little boy's unwavering faith, Bellerophon would have given up all hope and would have gone back to Lycia and have done his best to slay the chimera without the help of the winged horse. And in that case, poor Bellerophon would at least have been terribly scorched by the creature's breath that would most probably have been killed and devoured. Nobody should ever try to fight an earthborn chimera unless he can first get upon the back of an aerial steed. One morning, the child spoke to Bellerophon even more hopefully than usual. Dear, dear Bellerophon, cried he, I don't know why it is, but I feel as if we should certainly see Pegasus today. And all that day he would not stir a step from Bellerophon's side, so they ate a crust of bread together and drank some of the water of the fountain. In the afternoon, there they sat, and Bellerophon had thrown his arm around the child, who likewise had put one of his little hands into Bellerophon's. The latter was lost in his own thoughts, and was fixing his eyes vacantly on the trunks of trees that overshadowed the fountain, and on the grapevines that clambered up among their branches. But the gentle child was gazing down into the water. He was grieved for Bellerophon's sake, that the hope to another day should be deceived, like so many before it. And two or three quiet teardrops fell from his eyes and mingled with what were said to be the many tears of Pyrene 
when she wept for her slain children. But when he least thought of it, Bellerophon felt the pressure of the child's little hands and heard a soft, almost breathless whisper. See there, dear Bellerophon, there is an image in the water. The young man looked down into the dimpling mirror of the fountain and saw what he took to be the reflection of a bird which seemed to be flying at great height in the air, the gleam of sunshine on its snowy and silvery wings. What a splendid bird it must be, said he, and how very large it looks, though it must really be flying higher than the clouds. It makes me tremble, whispered the child. I am afraid to look up in the air. It is very beautiful, and yet I dare only look at its image in the water. Dear Bellerophon, do you not see that it is no bird? It is the winged horse Pegasus. Bellerophon's heart began to throb. He gazed keenly upward, but could not see the winged creature, whether bird or horse, because just then it had plunged into the fleecy depths of the summer cloud. It was but a moment, however, before the object reappeared, sinking lightly down out of the cloud, although still at a vast distance from the earth. Bellerophon caught the child in his arms and shrank back with him so that they were both hidden among the thick shrubbery which grew all around the fountain. Not that he was afraid of any harm, but he dreaded lest if Pegasus caught a glimpse of them he would fly far away and alight in some inaccessible mountaintop. For it was really the winged horse. After they had expected him so long, he was coming to quench his thirst with the water of Pyrene. Nearer and nearer came the aerial wonder, flying in gray circles, as you may have seen a dove when about to alight. Downward came Pegasus, in those wide, sweeping circles which grew narrower and narrower still as he gradually approached the earth. The nigher the view of him, the more beautiful he was, and the more marvelous the sweep of his silvery wings. At least with so light a pressure as hardly to bend the grass about the fountain or imprint a hoof tramp in the sand of its margin, he alighted and stooping his wild head began to drink. He drew in the water with long and pleasant sighs and tranquil pauses of enjoyment and then another draft and another and another for nowhere in the world or up among the clouds did Pegasus love any water as he loved this of Pyrene. And when his thirst was slaked he cropped a few of the honey blossoms of the clover, delicately tasting them, but not caring to make a hearty meal, because the herbage, just beneath the clouds and the lofty sides of Mount Helicon, suited his palate better than this ordinary grass. After thus drinking to his heart's content, and in his dainty fashion, condescending to take a little food, the winged horse began to caper to and fro and dance, as it were, out of mere idleness and sport. There never was more playful creature 
made than this very Pegasus. So there he frisked, in a way that it delights me to think about, fluttering his great wings as lightly as ever did a linnet, and running his little races half on earth and half in air, in which I know not whether to call a flight or a gallop. When a creature is perfectly able to fly, he sometimes chooses to run, just for the pastime of the thing, and so did Pegasus, although it cost him some little trouble to keep his hoofs so near to the ground. Bellerophon, meanwhile, holding the child's hand, peeped forth from the shrubbery and thought that never was any sight so beautiful as this, nor ever a horse's eyes so wild and spirited as those of Pegasus. It seemed a sin to think of bridling him and riding on his back. Once or twice Pegasus stopped and snuffed the air, pricking up his ears, tossing his head and turning it on all sides, as if he partly suspected some mischief or other. Seeing nothing, however, and hearing no sound, he soon began his antics again. At length, not that he was weary, but only idle and luxurious, Pegasus folded his wings and lay down on the soft green turf. But being too full of aerial life to remain quiet for many moments together, he soon rolled over on his back with his four slender legs in the air. It was beautiful to see him, this one solitary creature whose mate had never been created, but who needed no companion and living a great many hundred years was happy as the centuries were long. The more he did such things as mortal horses are accustomed to do, the less earthly and the more wonderful he seemed. Bellerophon and the child almost held their breath, partly from a delightful awe, but still more because they dreaded lest the slightest stir or murmur should send him up with the speed of an arrow flight into the farthest blue of the sky. Finally, when he had had enough of the rolling over and over, Pegasus turned himself about, indolently, like any other horse, put out his four legs in order to rise from the ground, and Bellerophon, who had guessed that he would do so, darted suddenly from the thicket and leaped astride of his back. Yes, there he sat, on the back of the winged horse. But what a bound did Pegasus make when for the first time he felt the weight of a mortal man upon his loins. A bound indeed. Before he had time to draw a breath, Bellerophon found himself five hundred feet aloft and still shooting upward while the winged horse snorted and trembled with terror and anger. Upward he went, up, 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 until he plunged into the cold, misty bosom of the cloud, at which only a little while before Bellerophon had been gazing and fancying it is a very pleasant spot. Then again, out of the heart of the cloud, Pegasus shot down like a thunderbolt, as if he meant to dash both himself and his rider headlong against a rock. Then he went through about a thousand of the wildest caprioles that had ever been performed either by a bird or a horse. 
I cannot tell you half that he did. He skimmed straight forward and sideways and backward. He reared himself erect with his forelegs on a wreath of mist and his hind legs on nothing at all. He flung out his heels behind and put down his head between his legs with his wings pointing right upward. At about two miles height above the earth, he turned to Somerset so that Bellerophon's heels were where his head should have been and he seemed to look down into the sky instead of up. He twisted his head about and looking Bellerophon in the face with fire flashing from his eyes made a terrible attempt to bite him. He fluttered his pinions so wildly that one of the silver feathers was shaken out and floating earthward was picked up by the child who kept it as long as he lived in memory of Pegasus and Bellerophon. But the latter, who, as you may have judged, was as good a horseman as ever galloped, had been watching his opportunity and at last clasped the golden bit the enchanted bridle between the winged steed's jaws. No sooner was this done than Pegasus became as manageable as if he had taken food all his life out of Bellerophon's hand. To speak what I really feel, it was almost a sadness to see so wild a creature grow suddenly so tame. And Pegasus seemed to feel it so, likewise. He looked round to Bellerophon with the tears in his beautiful eyes instead of the fire that so recently flashed from them. But when Bellerophon patted his head and spoke a few authoritative yet kind and soothing words, another came to the eyes of Pegasus, for he was glad at heart after so many centuries to have found a companion and a master. Thus it always was with winged horses and with all such wild and solitary creatures. If you can catch and overcome them, it is the surest way to win their love. While Pegasus had been doing his utmost to shake Bellerophon off his back, he had flown a very long distance, and they had come within sight of a lofty mountain by the time the bit was in his mouth. Bellerophon had seen his mountain before, and knew it to be Helicon, on the summit of which was the winged horse's abode. Thither, after looking gently into his rider's face, as if to ask leave, Pegasus now flew, and alighting, waiting patiently until Bellerophon should please to dismount. The young man, accordingly, leaped from his steed's back, but still held him fast by the bridle. Meeting his eyes, however, he was so affected by the gentleness of his aspect, and by his beauty, and by the thought of the free life which Pegasus had heretofore lived, that he could not bear keep him prisoner if he really desired his liberty. Obeying his generous impulse, he slipped the enchanted bridle off the head of Pegasus and took the bit from his mouth. Leave me, Pegasus, said he. Either leave me or love me. In an instant, the winged horse shot almost out of sight, soaring straight upward from the summit of Mount Helicon. Being long after sunset, it was now twilight on the mountaintop, 
and dusky evening all over the country round about. But Pegasus flew so high that he overtook the departed dam and was bathed in the upper radiance of the sun. Ascending higher and higher, he looked like a bright speck, and at last could no longer be seen in the hollow waste of the sky. And Bellerophon was afraid that he should never behold him more. But while he was lamenting his own folly, the bright speck reappeared and drew nearer and nearer until it descended lower than the sunshine. And behold, Pegasus had come back. After this trial, there was no more fear of the winged horses making his escape. He and Bellerophon were friends and put loving faith in one another. That night they lay down and slept together with Bellerophon's arm around the neck of Pegasus, not as a caution, but for kindness. And they awoke at the peep of day and bade one another good morning, each in his own language. In this manner, Bellerophon and the wondrous steed spent several days and grew better acquainted and fonder of each other all the time. They went on long journeys and sometimes ascended so high that the earth looked hardly bigger than the moon. They visited distant countries and amazed the inhabitants who thought that the beautiful young man on the back of a winged horse must have come down out of the sky. A thousand miles a day was no more than an easy pace for the fleet Pegasus to pass over. Bellerophon was delighted with this kind of life and would have liked nothing more than to live always in the same way, aloft in the clear atmosphere, for it was always sunny weather up there, however cheerless and rainy it might be in the lower region. But he could not forget the horrible chimera, which he had promised King Iobates to slay. So at last, when he had become well accustomed to the feats of horsemanship in the air, he could manage Pegasus with the least motion of his hand and then taught him to obey his voice. He determined to attempt the performance of this perilous venture. At daybreak, therefore, as soon as he unclosed his eyes, he gently pinched the winged horse's ear in order to arouse him. Pegasus immediately started from the ground and pranced about a quarter of a mile aloft, and made a grand sweep around the mountaintop by way of showing that he was wide awake and ready for any kind of excursion. During the whole of this little flight, he uttered a loud, brisk, and melodious neigh, and finally came down at Bellerophon's side, as lightly as ever you saw a sparrow hop upon a twig. Well done, dear Pegasus. Well done, my sky skimmer, cried Bellerophon, fondly stroking the horse's neck. And now, my fleet and beautiful friend, we must break our fast. Today, we are to fight the terrible Chimera. As soon as they had eaten their morning meal and drank some sparkling water from a spring called Hip-Hop Grenade, Pegasus held out his head of his own accord, so that his master might put on the bridle. 
Then, with a great many playful leaps and airy caperings, he showed his impatience to be gone. While Bellerophon was girding on his sword and hanging his shield about his neck and preparing himself for battle. When everything was ready, the rider mounted, and as was his custom, when going a long distance, ascended five miles perpendicularly, so as to better see whither he was directing his course. He then turned the head of Pegasus towards the east and set out for Lycia. In their flight they overtook an eagle and came so nigh him before he could get out of the way that Bellerophon might have caught him by the leg. Hastening onward at this rate, it was still early in the forenoon when they beheld the lofty mountains of Lycia with their deep and shaggy valleys. If Bellerophon had been told truly, it was in one of those dismal valleys that the hideous Chimera had taken up its abode. Being now so near to their journey's end, the winged horse gradually descended with his rider, and they took advantage of some clouds that were floating over the mountaintops in order to conceal themselves. Hovering on the upper surface of the cloud and peeping over its edge, Bellerophon had a pretty distinct view of the mountainous part of Lycia and could look into all its shadowy vales at once. At first there appeared to be nothing remarkable. It was a wild, savage, and rocky tract of high and precipitous hills. In the more level part of the country, there were the ruins of houses that had been burnt, and here and there, the carcasses of dead cattle strewn about the pastures where they had been feeding. The Chimera must have done this mischief, thought Bellerophon. But where can the monster be? As I have already said, there was nothing remarkable to be detected, at first sight, in any of the valleys or dells that lay among the precipitous heights of the mountains. Nothing at all. Unless, indeed... There were three spires of black smoke which issued from what seemed to be the mouth of a cavern and clambered sullenly into the atmosphere. Before reaching the mountaintop, these three black smoke wreaths mingled themselves into one. The cavern was almost directly beneath the winged horse and his rider at the distance of about a thousand feet. The smoke as it crept heavily upward, had an ugly, sulfurous, stifling scent, which caused Pegasus to snort and Bellerophon to sneeze. So disagreeable was it to the marvelous steed, who was accustomed to breathe only the purest air, that he waved his wings and shot half a mile out of the range of this offensive vapor. But on looking behind him, Bellerophon saw something that induced him first to draw the bridle and then to turn Pegasus about. He made a sign, which the winged horse understood, and sunk slowly through the air until his hoofs were scarcely more than a man's height above the rocky bottom of the valley. In front, as far off as you could throw a stone, was the cavern's mouth, with the three smoke wreaths oozing out of it. And what else did Bellerophon behold there? There seemed to be a heap of strange, 
and terrible creatures curled up within the cavern. Their bodies lay so close together that Bellerophon could not distinguish them apart. But judging by their heads, one of these creatures was a huge snake, the second a fierce lion, and the third an ugly goat. The lion and the goat were asleep. The snake was brought awake and kept staring around him with a great pair of fiery eyes. But, and this was the most wonderful part of the matter, the three spires of smoke evidently issued from the nostrils of these three heads. So strange was the spectacle, that though Bellerophon had been all along expecting it, the truth did not immediately occur to him. They hear was the terrible three-headed chimera. He had found out the chimera's cavern. The snake, the lion, and the goat, as he supposed them to be, were not three separate creatures, but one monster. The wicked, hateful thing. Slumbering as two-thirds of it were, it still held, in its abominable claws, the remnant of an unfortunate lamb. Or possibly, but I hate to think so, it was a dear little boy, which its three mouths had been gnawing before two of them fell asleep. All at once, Bellerophon started as from a dream and knew it to be the chimera. Pegasus seemed to know it at the same instant and sent forth a neigh that sounded like a call of a trumpet in the battle. At this sound, the three heads reared themselves erect and belched out great flashes of flame. Before Bellerophon had time to consider what to do next, the monster flung itself out of the cavern and sprung straight towards him, with its immense claws extended, its snaky tail twisting itself venomously behind. If Pegasus had not been as nimble as a bird, both he and his rider would have been overthrown by the chimera's headlong rush and thus the battle would have ended before it was well begun. But the winged horse was not to be caught so. In the twinkling of an eye, he was up aloft, halfway to the clouds, snoring with anger. He shuddered, too, not with a fright, but with utter disgust at the loathsomeness of this poisonous thing with three heads. The chimera, on the other hand, raised itself up so as to stand absolutely on the tip end of its tail, with its talons pawing fiercely in the air and its three heads sputtering fire at Pegasus and his rider. My stars, how it roared and hissed and bellowed. Bellerophon, meanwhile, was fitting his shield on his arm and drawing his sword. Now, my beloved Pegasus, he whispered in the winged horse's ear, Thou must help me to slay this insufferable monster, or else thou shalt fly back to thy solitary mountain peak without thy friend Bellerophon. For either the chimera dies, or its three mouths shall gnaw this head of mine which has slumbered upon thy neck. Pegasus whinnied, and turning back his head, rubbed his nose tenderly against his rider's cheek, it was his way of telling him that, though he had wings and was an immortal horse, yet he would perish if it were possible for immortality to perish, rather than leave Bellerophon behind. 
I thank you, Pegasus, answered Bellerophon. Now then, let us make a dash at the monster. Uttering these words, he shook the bridle, and Pegasus darted down a slant, as swift as the flight of an arrow, right towards the chimera's threefold head, which all this time was poking itself as high as it could into the air. As he came within arm's length, Bellerophon made a cut at the monster, who was carried onward by his steed before he could see whether the blow had been successful. Pegasus continued his course, but soon wheeled around at about the same distance from the chimera as before. Bellerophon then perceived that he had cut the goat's head of the monster almost off, so that it dangled toward by the skin and seemed quite dead. But to make amends, the snake's head and the lion's head had taken all the fierceness of the dead one into themselves and spit flames and hissed and roared with a vast deal more fury than before. Never mind, my brave Pegasus, cried Bellerophon. With another stroke like that, we will stop either its hissing or its roaring. And again he shook the bridle, dashing as slantwise as before. The winged horse made another arrow flight towards the chimera, and Bellerophon aimed another downright stroke at one of the two remaining heads as he shot by. But this time, neither he nor Pegasus escaped so well as the first. With one of its claws, the chimera had given the young man a deep scratch on his shoulder and slightly damaged the left wing of the flying steed with the other. On his part, Bellerophon had mortally wounded the lion's head of the monster, insomuch that it now hung downward, with its fire almost extinguished, and sending out gas of thick black smoke. The snake's head, however, which was the only one now left, was twice as fierce and venomous as ever before. It belched forth shoots of fire five hundred yards long and emitted hisses so loud, so harsh, and so ear-piercing that King Iobates heard them fifty miles off and trembled till the throne shook under him. Well a day, thought the poor king, the chimera is certainly coming to devour me. Meanwhile, Pegasus had again paused in the air and neighed angrily, while sparkles of a pure crystal flame darted out of his eyes. How unlike the lurid fire of the chimera. The aerial steed's spirit was all aroused, and so was that of Balrofen. Dost thou bleed, my immortal horse, cried the young man, caring less for his own hurt than for the anguish of this glorious creature without never to have tasted pain. The execrable Chimera shall pay for this mischief with his last head. Then he shook the bridle, shouted loudly, and guided Pegasus, not as slantwise as before, but straight at the monster's hideous front. So rapid was the onset that it seemed but a dazzle and a flash before Bellerophon was at close grips with his enemy. The Chimera by this time after losing its second head, 
He got into a red-hot passion of pain and rampant rage. It so flounced about, half on earth and partly in the air, that it was impossible to say which element it rested upon. It opened its snake jaws to such an abominable width that Pegasus might almost, I was going to say, have flown right down its throat, wings outspread, rider and all. At their approach, it shot out a tremendous blast of fiery breath and enveloped Bellerophon and his steed in a perfect atmosphere of flame, singeing the wings of Pegasus, scorching off one whole side of the young man's golden ringlets and making them both far hotter than was comfortable from head to foot. But this was nothing to what followed. When the airy rush of the winged horse had brought him within the distance of a hundred yards, the chimera gave a spring and flung its huge, awkward, venomous, and utterly detestable carcass right upon poor Pegasus, clung round him with might and mane, and tied up its snaky tail into a knot. Up flew the aerial steed higher, 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 above the mountain peaks, above the clouds, and almost out of sight of the solid earth. But still, the earthborn monster kept its hold, and was borne upward, along with the creature of light and air. Bellerophon, meanwhile, turning about, found himself face to face with the ugly grimness of the chimera's visage, and could only avoid being scorched to death or bitten right in twain by holding up his shield. Over the upper edge of the shield, he looked sternly into the savage eyes of the monster. But the chimera was so mad and so wild with pain that it did not guard itself so well as might else have been the case. Perhaps, after all, the best way to fight a chimera is by getting as close to it as you can. In its efforts to stick its horrible iron claws into its enemy, the creature left his own breast quite exposed, and perceiving this, Bellerophon thrust his sword up to the hill into its cruel heart. Immediately the snaky tail untied its knot. The monster let go its hold of Pegasus and fell from that vast height downward while the fire within its bosom, instead of being put out, burned fiercer than ever, and quickly began to consume the dead carcass. Thus it fell out of the sky, all aflame, and, it being nightfall before it reached the earth, was mistaken for a shooting star or a comet. Was mistaken for a shooting star or a comet. But, at early sunrise, some cottagers were going to their day's labor and saw to their astonishment that several acres of ground were strewn with black ashes. In the middle of a field, there was a heap of whitened bones, a great deal higher than a haystack. Nothing else was ever seen of the dreadful chimera. And when Balrofen had won the victory... He bent forward and kissed Pegasus while the tears stood in his eyes. Back now, my beloved steed, said he, back to the fountain of Pyrenees. Pegasus skimmed through the air, 
quicker than he ever did before and reached the fountain in a very short time. And there he found the old man leaning on his staff and the country fellow watering his cow and the pretty maiden filling her pitcher. I remember now, quoth the old man, I saw this winged horse once before when I was quite a lad, but he was ten times handsomer in those days. I own a cart horse worth three of them, said the country fellow. If this pony were mine, the first thing I should do would be to clip his wings. But the poor maiden said nothing, for she had always had the luck to be afraid at the wrong time, so she ran away and let her pitcher tumble down and broke it. Where's the gentle child, said Bellerophon, who used to keep me company and never lost his faith and never was weary of gazing into the fountain. Here am I, dear Bellerophon, said the child softly. For the little boy had spent day after day on the margin of Pyrenee, waiting for his friend to come back. But when he perceived Bellerophon descending through the clouds, mounted on the winged horse, he had shrunk back into the shrubbery. He was a delicate and tender child, and dreaded lest the old man and the country fellow should see the tears gushing from his eyes. Thou hast won the victory, said he joyfully, running to the knee of Bellerophon, who still sat on the back of Pegasus. I knew thou wouldest. Yes, dear child, replied Bellerophon, alighting from the winged horse. But if thy faith had not helped me, I should never have waited for Pegasus, and never have gone up above the clouds, and never have conquered the terrible chimera. Thou, my beloved little friend, hast done it all, and now let us give Pegasus his liberty. So he slipped off the enchanted bridle from the head of the marvelous steed. Be free forevermore, my Pegasus, cried he, with a shade of sadness in his tone. Be as free as thou art fleet. But Pegasus rested his head on Bellerophon's shoulder and would not be persuaded to take flight. Well then, said Bellerophon, caressing the airy horse, thou shalt be with me as long as thou wilt, and we will go together forthwith and tell King Iobates that the chimera is destroyed. Then Bellerophon embraced the gentle child and promised to come to him again and departed. But in after years that child took higher flights upon the aerial steed than ever did Bellerophon and achieved more honorable deeds than his friend's victory over the chimera. For, gentle and tender as he was, he grew to be a mighty poet. Perseus was the son of Danae, who was the daughter of a king. When Perseus was a very little boy, some wicked people put his mother and himself into a chest and set them afloat upon the sea. The wind blew freshly and drove the chest away from the shore and the uneasy billows tossed it up and down, while Danae clasped her child closely to her bosom and dreaded that some big wave would dash its foamy crest over them both. 
The chest sailed on, however, and neither sank nor was upset, until when night was coming, it floated so near an island that it got entangled in a fisherman's nets and was drawn out high and dry upon the sand. The island was called Serapis, and it was reigned over by King Polydectes, who happened to be the fisherman's brother. This fisherman, I am glad to tell you, was an exceedingly humane and upright man. He showed great kindness to Danae and her little boy, and continued to befriend them, until Perseus had grown to be a handsome youth, very strong and active and skillful in the use of arms. Long before this time, King Polydectes had seen the two strangers, the mother and her child, who had come to his dominions in a floating chest. As he was not good and kind like his brother, the fisherman, but extremely wicked, he resolved to send Perseus on a dangerous enterprise in which he would probably be killed, and then to do some great mischief to Danae herself, so that this bad-hearted king spent a long while in considering what was the most dangerous thing that a young man could possibly undertake to perform. At last, having hit upon an enterprise that promised to turn out as fatally as he desired, he sent for the youthful Perseus. The young man came to the palace and found the king sitting upon his throne. Perseus said King Polydectes, smiling craftily upon him. You are grown up a fine young man. You and your good mother have received a great deal of kindness from myself as well as from my worthy brother, the fisherman, and I suppose you would not be so sorry to repay some of it. Please, your majesty, answered Perseus, I would willingly risk my life to do so. Well then, continued the king, Still, with a cunning smile on his lips, I have a little adventure to propose to you, and as you are a brave and enterprising youth, you will doubtless look upon him as a great piece of good luck to have so rare an opportunity of distinguishing yourself. You must know, my good Perseus, I think of getting married to the beautiful princess Hippodamia, and it is customary on these occasions to make the bride a present of some far-fetched and elegant curiosity. I have been a little perplexed, I must honestly confess, where to obtain anything likely to please a princess of her exquisite taste. But this morning, I flatter myself, I have thought of precisely the article. And can I assist your majesty in obtaining it? cried Perseus eagerly. You can, if you are as brave a youth as I believe you to be, replied King Polydectes with the utmost graciousness of manner. The bridal gift, which I set my heart on presenting to the beautiful Hippodamia, is the head of the Gorgon Medusa with the snaky locks, and I depend on you, my dear Perseus, to bring it to me. So, as I am anxious to settle affairs with the princess, the sooner you go in quest of the Gorgon, the better I shall be pleased. I will set out tomorrow morning, answered Perseus. Pray do so, my gallant youth, rejoined the king. And Perseus, 
and cutting off the gorgon's head. Be careful to make a clean stroke so as not to injure its appearance. You must bring a home in the very best condition in order to suit the exquisite taste of the beautiful Princess Hippodamia. Perseus left the palace, but was scarcely out of hearing before Polydectes burst into a laugh, being greatly amused, wicked king that he was, to find how readily the young man fell into the snare. The news quickly spread that Perseus had undertaken to cut off the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. Everybody was rejoiced, for most of the inhabitants of the island were as wicked as the king himself and would have liked nothing better than to see some enormous mischief happen to Danae and her son. The only good man in this unfortunate island of Serapis appears to have been the fisherman. As Perseus walked along, therefore, the people pointed after him and made mouths and winked to one another and ridiculed him loudly as they dared. Ho, ho, cried they. Medusa's snakes will sting him soundly. Now there were three gorgons alive at that period, and they were the most strange and terrible monsters that had ever been seen since the world was made, or that had been seen in after days, or that are likely to be seen in all time to come. I hardly know what sort of creature or or hobgoblin to call them. They were three sisters, and seemed to have borne some distant resemblance to women, but were really a frightful and mischievous species of dragon. It is indeed difficult to imagine what hideous beings these three sisters were. Why, instead of locks of hair, if you can believe me, they had each of them a hundred enormous snakes growing on their heads all alive, twisting, wriggling, curling, and thrusting out their venomous tongues with forked stings at the end. The teeth of the gorgons were terribly long tusks. Their hands were made of brass, and their bodies were all over scales, which, if not iron, were something as hard and impenetrable. They had wings, too, and exceedingly splendid ones. I can assure you, for every feather in them was pure, bright, glittering, burnished gold, and they looked very dazzling, no doubt, when the gorgons were flying about in the sunshine. But when people happened to catch a glimpse of their glittering brightness aloft in the air, they seldom stopped to gaze, but ran and hid themselves as speedily as they could. You will think, perhaps, that they were afraid of being stung by the serpents that served the gorgons instead of hair, or of having their heads bitten off by their ugly tusks, or being torn all to pieces by their brazen claws. Well, to be sure, these were some of the dangers, but by no means the greatest, nor the most difficult to avoid, for the worst thing about these abominable gorgons was that if once a poor mortal fixed his eyes full upon one of their faces, he was certain that very instant to be changed from warm flesh and blood into cold and lifeless stone. Thus, as you will easily perceive, 
It was a very dangerous adventure that the wicked King Polydectes had contrived with his innocent young man. Perseus himself, when he had thought over the matter, could not help seeing that he had very little chance of coming safely through it, and that he was far more likely to become a stone image than to bring back the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. For not to speak of other difficulties, there was one which it would have puzzled an older man than Perseus to get over. Not only must he fight and slay this golden-winged, iron-scaled, long-tusked, brazen-clawed, snaky-haired monster, but he must do it with his eyes shut, or at least without so much as a glance at the enemy with whom he was contending. Else, while his arm was lifted to strike, he would stiffen into stone and stand with that uplifted arm for centuries until time and the wind and weather should crumble him quite away. This would be a very sad thing to befall a young man who wanted to perform a great many brave deeds and to enjoy a great deal of happiness in this bright and beautiful world. So disconsolate did these thoughts make him that Perseus could not bear to tell his mother what he had undertaken to do. He therefore took his shield, girded on his sword, and crossed over from the island to the mainland, where he sat down in a solitary place and hardly refrained from shedding tears. But while he was in this sorrowful mood, he heard a voice close behind him. Perseus said the voice, why are you sad? He lifted his head from his hands, in which he had hidden, and behold, all alone as Perseus had supposed himself to be, there was a stranger in the solitary place. It was a brisk, intelligent, and remarkably shrewd-looking young man, with a cloak over his shoulders and an odd sort of cap on his head, a strangely twisted staff in his hand, and a short and very crooked sword hanging by his side. He was exceedingly light and active in his figure, like a person much accustomed to gymnastic exercises, and well able to leap or run. Above all, the stranger had such a cheerful, knowing and helpful aspect, though it was certainly a little mischievous into the bargain, that Perseus could not help feeling his spirits grow livelier, as he gazed at him. Besides, being a really courageous youth, he felt greatly ashamed that anybody should have found him with tears in his eyes, like a timid little schoolboy, when after all, there might be no occasion for despair. So Perseus wiped his eyes and answered the stranger pretty briskly, putting on as brave a look as he could. I am not so very sad, said he, only thoughtful about an adventure that I have undertaken. Oh, answered the stranger. Well, tell me all about it, and possibly I may be of service to you. I have helped a good many young men through adventures that looked difficult enough beforehand. Perhaps you have heard of me. I have more names than one, but the name of Quicksilver suits me as well as any other. Tell me what the trouble is, and we will talk the matter over, 
and see what can be done. The stranger's words and manner put Perseus into a quite different mood from his former one. He resolved to tell Quicksilver all his difficulties, since he could not easily be worse off than he already was, and very possibly his new friend might give him some advice that would turn out well in the end. So he let the stranger know, in few words, precisely what the case was, how that King Polydectes wanted the head of Medusa with the snaky locks as a bridal gift for the beautiful Princess Hippodamia, and how that he had undertaken to get it for him, but was afraid of being turned into stone. And that would be a great pity, said Quicksilver, with his mischievous smile. He would make a very handsome marble statue, it is true, and it would be a very considerable number of centuries before you crumbled away. But on the whole, one would rather be a young man for a few years than a stone image for a great many. Oh, far rather, exclaimed Perseus, with the tears again standing in his eyes. And besides, what would my dear mother do if her beloved son were turned into a stone? Well, well, let us hope that the affair will not turn out so very badly, replied Quicksilver in an encouraging tone. I am the very person to help you if anybody can. My sister and myself will do our utmost to bring you safe through the adventure, ugly as now it looks. Your sister, repeated Perseus. Yes, my sister, said the stranger. She is very wise, I promise you. And as for myself, I generally have all my wits about me, such as they are. If you show yourself bold and cautious and follow our advice, you need not fear being a stone image yet a while. But first of all, you must polish your shield you can see your face in it as distinctly as in a mirror. This seemed to Perseus rather an odd beginning of the adventure, for he thought it of more consequence that the shield should be strong enough to defend him from the Gorgon's brazen claws than that it should be bright enough to show the reflection of his face. However, concluding that Quicksilver knew better than himself, he immediately set to work and scrubbed the shield with so much diligence and goodwill that it very quickly shone like the moon at harvest time. Quicksilver looked at it with a smile and nodded his approbation. Then taking off his own short and crooked sword, he girded it about Perseus instead of the one which he had before worn. No sword but mine will answer your purpose, observed he. The blade has a most excellent temper and will cut through iron and brass as easily as through the slenderest twig. And now we will set out. The next thing is to find the three gray women who will tell us where to find the nymphs. The three gray women, cried Perseus, to whom this seemed only a new difficulty in the path of his adventure. Pray, who may the three gray women be? I never heard of them before. They are three very strange old ladies, said Quicksilver, laughing. They have but one eye among them, and only one tooth. Moreover, you must find them out by starlight, 
or in the dusk of the evening, for they never show themselves by the light either of the sun or moon. But, said Perseus, why should I waste my time with these three gray women? Would it not be better to set out at once in search of the terrible Gorgons? No, no, answered his friend. There are other things to be done before you can find your way to the Gorgons. There is nothing for it but to hunt up these old ladies, and when we meet with them, you may be sure that the Gorgons are not a great way off. Come, let us be stirring. Perseus, by this time, felt so much confidence in his companion's sagacity that he made no more objections and professed himself ready to begin the adventure immediately. They accordingly set out and walked at a brisk pace, so brisk indeed that Perseus found it rather difficult to keep up with his nimble friend Quicksilver. To say the truth, he had a singular idea that Quicksilver was furnished with a pair of winged shoes, which, of course, helped him along marvelously. And then, too, when Perseus looked sideways at him, out of the corner of his eyes, he seemed to see wings on the side of his head, although, if he turned a full gaze, there were no such things to be perceived, but only an odd kind of cap. But at all events, the twisted staff was evidently a great convenience to Quicksilver, and enabled him to proceed so fast that Perseus, though a remarkably active young man, began to be out of breath. Here, cried Quicksilver, at last, for he knew well enough, rogue that he was, how hard Perseus found it to keep pace with him. Take you the staff for you needed a great deal more than I. Are there no better walkers than yourself in the island of Serapis? I could walk pretty well, said Perseus, glancing slyly at his companion's feet, if I had only a pair of winged shoes. We must see about getting you a pair, answered Quicksilver. But the staff helped Perseus along so bravely that he no longer felt the slightest weariness. In fact, the stick seemed to be alive in his hand and to lend some of its life to Perseus. He and Quicksilver now walked onward at their ease, talking very sociably together, and Quicksilver told so many pleasant stories about his former adventures and how well his wits had served him on various occasions that Perseus began to think him a very wonderful person. He evidently knew the world, and nobody is so charming to a young man as a friend who has that kind of knowledge. Perseus listened more eagerly, in the hope of brightening his own wits by what he had heard. At last he happened to recollect that Quicksilver had spoken of his sister, who was to lend her assistance in the adventure which they were now bound upon. Where is she? he inquired. Shall we not meet her soon? All at the proper time, said his companion. But this sister of mine, you must understand, is quite a different sort of character than myself. She is very grave and prudent, seldom smiles, never laughs, 
and makes it a rule not to utter a word unless she has something particularly profound to say. Neither will she listen to any but the wisest conversation. Dear me, ejaculated Perseus, I shall be afraid to say a syllable. She is a very accomplished person, I assure you, continued Quicksilver, and has all the arts and sciences at her fingers' ends. In short, she is so immoderately wise that many people call her wisdom personified. But, to tell you the truth, she is hardly vivacity enough for my taste, and I think you would scarcely find her so pleasant a traveling companion as myself. She has her good points, nevertheless, and you will find the benefit of them in your encounter with the Gorgons. By this time it had grown quite dusk. They were now come to a very wild and deserted place, overgrown with shaggy bushes, and so silent and solitary that nobody seemed ever to have dwelt or journeyed there. All was waste and desolate in the gray twilight, which grew every moment more obscure. Perseus looked about him rather disconsolately and asked Quicksilver whether they had a great deal farther to go. Hist, hist, whispered his companion, make no noise. This is just the time and place to meet the three gray women. Be careful that they do not see you before you see them, for, though they have but a single eye among the three, it is as sharp-sighted as half a dozen common eyes. But what must I do, asked Perseus, when we meet them? Quicksilver explained to Perseus how the three gray women managed with their one eye. They were in the habit, it seems, of changing it from one to another, as if it had been a pair of spectacles, or, which would have suited them better, a quizzing glass. When one of the three had kept the eye a certain time, she took it out of the socket and passed it to one of her sisters, whose turn it might happen to be, and who immediately clapped it into her own head and enjoyed a peep at the visible world. Thus it will be easily understood that only one of the three great women could see, while the other two were in utter darkness, and moreover, at the instant when the eye was passing from hand to hand, neither of the poor old ladies was able to see a wink. I have heard of a great many strange things in my day, and have witnessed not a few, but none, it seems to me, that compare with the oddity of these three gray women, all peeping through a single eye. So thought Perseus, likewise, and was so astonished that he almost fancied his companion was joking with him, and that there was no such old women in the world. You will soon find whether I tell the truth or no, observed Quicksilver. Hark, hush, hist, hist. There they come now. Perseus looked earnestly through the dusk of the evening, and there, sure enough, at no great distance off, he descried the three gray women. The light being so faint, he could not well make out what sort of figures they were. Only he discovered that they had long gray hair, and as they came nearer, he saw that two of them had but the empty socket of an eye in the middle of their foreheads. But in the middle 
of the third sister's forehead, there was a very large, bright, and piercing eye, which sparkled like a great diamond in a ring. And so penetrating did it seem to be that Perseus could not help thinking it must possess the gift of seeing in the darkest midnight just as perfectly as at noonday. The sight of the three persons' eyes was melted and collected into that single one. Thus the three old dames got along about as comfortably, upon the whole, as if they could all see at once. She who chanced to have the eye in her forehead led the other two by the hands, peeping sharply about her all the while, insomuch that Perseus dreaded lest she would see right through the quick clump of bushes behind which he and Quicksilver had hidden themselves. My stars, it was positively terrible to be within reach of so very sharp an eye. But before they reached the clump of bushes, one of the three gray women spoke. Sister, Sister Scarecrow, cried she, you have had the eye long enough. It is my turn now. Let me keep it a moment longer, Sister Nightmare, answered Scarecrow. I thought I had a glimpse of something behind that thick bush. Well, and what of that? retorted Nightmare peevishly. Can't I see into a thick bush as easily as yourself? The eye is mine as well as yours, and I know the use of it as well as you, or maybe a little better. I insist upon taking a peep immediately. But here the third sister, whose name was Shakejoint, began to complain, and said that it was her turn to have the eye, and that Scarecrow and Nightmare wanted to keep it all to themselves. To end the dispute, old dame Scarecrow took the eye out of her forehead and held it forth in her hand. Take it, one of you, cried she, and quit this foolish quarreling. For my part, I shall be glad of a little thick darkness. Take it quickly, however, or I must clap it into my own head again. Accordingly, both Nightmare and Shake Joint put out their hands, groping eagerly to snatch the eye out of the hand of Scarecrow. But being both alike blind, they could not easily find where Scarecrow's hand was, and Scarecrow, being just now as much in the dark as Shake Joint and Nightmare, could not at once meet either of their hands in order to put the eye into it. Thus, as you will see, with half an eye, my wise little auditors, these good old dames had fallen into a strange perplexity. For though the eye shone and glistened like a star, and a scarecrow held it out, yet the gray women caught not their least glimpse of its light, and were all three in utter darkness, from too impatient a desire to see. Quicksilver was so much tickled at beholding Shakejoin and Nightmare both groping for the eye and each finding fault with Scarecrow and one another that he could scarcely help laughing aloud. Now is your time, he whispered to Perseus. Quick, quick, before they can clap the eye into either of their heads. Rush out upon the old ladies and snatch it from Scarecrow's hand. In an instant, while the three gray women were still scolding each other, Perseus leaped from behind the clump of bushes 
and made himself master of the prize. The marvelous eye, as he held it out in his hand, shone very brightly and seemed to look upon his face with a knowing air and an expression as if it would have winked had it been provided with a pair of eyelids for that purpose. But the gray women knew nothing of what had happened, and each supposing that one of their sisters was now in possession of the eye, they began to quarrel anew. At last, as Perseus did not wish to put these respectable dames to greater inconvenience than was really necessary, he thought it right to explain the matter. My good lady, said he, pray do not be angry with one another. If anybody is in fault, it is myself, for I have the honor to hold your very brilliant and excellent eye in my own hand. You, you have our eye, and who are you? screamed the three gray women, all in a breath, for they were terribly frightened, of course, at hearing a strange voice and discovering that their eyesight had got into the hands of they could not guess whom. Oh, what shall we do, sisters, what shall we do? We are all in the dark. Give us our eye, give us our one precious solitary eye. You have two of your own. Give us our eye. Tell them, whispered Quicksilver to Perseus, that they shall have the eye back as soon as they direct you where to find the nymphs who have the flying slippers, the magic wallet, and the helmet of darkness. My dear, good, admirable old ladies, said Perseus, addressing the gray women, there is no occasion for putting yourselves into such a fright. I am by no means a bad young man. You shall have back your eye, safe and sound, and as bright as ever, the moment you tell me where to find the nymphs. The nymphs? Goodness me, sisters, what nymphs does he mean? Screamed Scarecrow. There are a great many nymphs, people say. Some that go hunting in the woods, and some that live inside the trees, and some that have a comfortable home in fountains of water. We know nothing at all about them. We are three unfortunate old souls that go wandering about in the dusk and never had but one eye amongst us that one you have stolen away. Oh, give it back, good stranger. Whoever you are, give it back. All this while, the three gray women were groping with their outstretched hands and trying their utmost to get hold of Perseus. But he took good care to keep out of their reach. My respectable dame, said he, for his mother had taught him to use always the greatest ability. I hold your eye fast in my hand and shall keep it safely for you until you please to tell me where to find the nymphs. The nymphs, I mean, who keep the enchanted wallet, the flying slippers, and, but what is it, the helmet of invisibility. Mercy on us, sisters. What is the young man talking about? exclaimed Scarecrow, Nightmare, and Shake Joint, one to another, with great appearance of astonishment. A pair of flying slippers, quoth he. His heels would quickly fly higher than his head, 
if he were silly enough to put them on. And a helmet of invisibility. How could a helmet make him invisible unless it were big enough for him to hide under it? And an enchanted wallet. What sort of contrivance may that be, I wonder? No, no, good stranger. We can tell you nothing of these marvelous things. You have two eyes of your own, but we have but a single one amongst us three. You can find out such wonders better than three blind old creatures like us. Perseus, hearing them talk in this way, began really to think that the gray women knew nothing of the matter. And as it grieved him to have put them to so much trouble, he was just on the point of restoring their eye and asking pardon for his rudeness and snatching it away. But Quicksilver caught his hand. Don't let them make a fool of you, said he. These three gray women are the only persons in the world that can tell you where to find the nymphs. And unless you get that information, you will never succeed in cutting off the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. Keep fast hold of the eye, and all will go well. As it turned out, Quicksilver was in the right. There are but few things that people prize so much as they do their eyesight, and the gray women valued their single eye as highly as if it had been half a dozen, which was the number they ought to have had. Finding that there was no other way of recovering him, they at last told Perseus what he wanted to know. No sooner had they done so than he immediately, and with the utmost respect, clapped the eye into the vacant socket in one of their foreheads, thanked them for their kindness, and bade them farewell. Before the young man was out of hearing, however, they had got into a new dispute, because he happened to have given the eye to Scarecrow, who had already taken her turn of it when their trouble with Perseus commenced. It is greatly to be feared that the three gray women were very much in the habit of disturbing their mutual harmony by bickerings of this sort, which was more the pity as they could not conveniently do without one another and were evidently intended to be inseparable companions. As a general rule, I would advise all people, whether sisters or brothers, old or young, who chance to have but one eye amongst them, to cultivate forbearance, and not all insist upon peeping through it at once. Quicksilver and Perseus, in the meantime, were making the best of their way in quest of the nymphs. The old dames had given them such particular directions that they were not long in finding them out. They proved to be very different persons from Nightmare, Shakejoint, and Scarecrow. For instead of being old, they were young and beautiful. And instead of one eye amongst the sisterhood, each nymph had two exceedingly bright eyes of their own, with which she looked very kindly at Perseus. They seemed to be acquainted with Quicksilver, and when he told them the adventure which Perseus had undertaken, they made no difficulty about giving him the valuable articles that were in their custody. In the first place, they brought out what appeared to be a small purse made of deerskin and curiously embroidered and bade him be sure and keep it safe. This was the magic wallet. The nymphs next produced a pair of shoes or slippers or sandals 
with a nice little pair of wings at the heel of each. Put them on, Perseus, said Quicksilver. You will find yourself as light-heeled as you can desire for the remainder of your journey. So Perseus proceeded to put one of the slippers on while he laid the other on the ground by his side. Unexpectedly, however, this other slipper spread its wings, fluttered off the ground, and would probably have flown away if Quicksilver had not made a leap and luckily caught it in the air. Be more careful, said he, as he gave it back to Perseus. It would frighten the birds up a lot if they should see a flying slipper amongst them. When Perseus had got on both of these wonderful slippers, he was altogether too buoyant to tread on earth. Making a step or two, lo and behold, upward he popped into the air, high above the heads of Quicksilver and the nymphs, and found it very difficult to clamber down again. Wing slippers, and all such high-flying contrivances are seldom quite easy to manage until one grows a little accustomed to them. Quicksilver laughed at his companion's involuntary activity and told him that he must not be in so desperate a hurry, but must wait for the invisible helmet. The good-natured nymphs had the helmet with its dark tuft of waving plumes, all in readiness to put upon his head. And now there happened about as wonderful an incident as anything that I have yet told you. The instant before the helmet was put on, there stood Perseus, a beautiful young man, with golden ringlets and rosy cheeks, the crooked sword by his side and the brightly polished shield upon his arm, a figure that seemed all made up of courage, sprightliness, and glorious light. But when the helmet had descended over his white brow, there was no longer any Perseus to be seen, nothing but empty air. Even the helmet that covered him with its invisibility had vanished. Where are you, Perseus? asked Quicksilver. Why, here, to be sure, answered Perseus very quietly, although his voice seemed to come out of the transparent atmosphere. Just where I was a moment ago. Don't you see me? No, indeed, answered his friend. You are hidden under the helmet. But if I cannot see you, neither can the Gorgons. Follow me, therefore and we will try your dexterity in using the wing slippers. With these words, Quicksilver's cap spread its wings, as if his head were about to fly away from his shoulders, but his whole figure rose lightly into the air, and Perseus followed. By the time they had ascended a few hundred feet, the young man began to feel what a delightful thing it was to leave the dull earth so far behind him to be able to flit about like a bird. It was now deep night. Perseus looked upward and saw the round, bright, silvery moon and thought that he should desire nothing better than to soar up thither and spend his life there. Then he looked downward again and saw the earth with its seas and lakes and the silver courses of its rivers and its snowy mountain peaks and the breadth of its field and the dark cluster of woods and its cities of white marble and with the moonshine sleeping over the whole scene 
It was as beautiful as the moon or any star could be. And among other objects, he saw the island of Seraphis, where his dear mother was. Sometimes he and Quicksilver approached a cloud that at a distance looked as if it were made of fleecy silver. Although when they plunged into it, they found themselves chilled and moistened with gray mist. So swift was their flight, however, that in an instant they emerged from the cloud into the moonlight again. Once a high-soaring eagle flew right against the invisible Perseus. The bravest sights were the meteors that gleamed suddenly out, as if a bonfire had been kindled in the sky and made the moonshine pale for as much as a hundred miles around them. As the two companions flew onward, Perseus fancied that he could hear the rustle of a garment close by his side, and it was on the side opposite to the one where he beheld Quicksilver, yet only Quicksilver was visible. Whose garment is this? inquired Perseus, that keeps rustling close beside me in the breeze. Oh, it is my sister's, answered Quicksilver. She is coming along with us, as I told you she would. We could do nothing without the help of my sister. You have no idea how wise she is. She has such eyes, too. Why, she can see you at this moment, just as distinctly as if you were not invisible, and I'll venture to say she will be the first to discover the Gorgons. By this time, in their swift voyage through the air, they had come within sight of the great ocean and were soon flying over it. Far beneath them, the waves tossed themselves tumultuously in mid-sea, or rolled a white surf line upon the long beaches, or foamed against the rocky cliffs with a roar that was thunderous in the lower world, although it became a gentle murmur, like the voice of a baby half asleep before it reached the ears of Perseus. Just then, a voice spoke in the air close by him. It seemed to be a woman's voice, and was melodious, though not exactly in what might be called sweet, but grave and mild. Perseus said the voice, There are the Gorgons. Where, exclaimed Perseus, I cannot see them. On the shore of that island beneath you, replied the voice, a pebble dropped from your hand would strike in the midst of them. I told you she would be the first to discover them, said Quicksilver to Perseus, and there they are. Straight downward two or three thousand feet below him, Perseus perceived a small island, with the sea breaking into white foam all around its rocky shore, except on one side, where there was a beach of snowy sand. He descended toward it, and looking earnestly at a cluster or heap of brightness at the foot of the precipice of black rocks, behold, there were the terrible gorgons. They lay fast asleep, soothed by the thunder of the sea, for it required a tumult that would have deafened everybody else to lull such fierce creatures into slumber. The moonlight glistened on their steely scales, and on their golden wings, which drooped idly over the sand. 
Their brazen claws, horrible to look at, were thrust out and clutched the wave-beaten fragments of rock while the sleeping gorgons dreamed of tearing some poor mortal all to pieces. The snakes that served them instead of their hair seemed likewise to be asleep, although now and then would writhe and lift its head and thrust out its forked tongue, emitting a drowsy hiss, and then let itself subside among its sister snakes. The gorgons were more like an awful, gigantic kind of insect, immense gold-winged beetles or dragonflies or things of that sort, at once ugly and beautiful, then like anything else, only that they were a thousand and a million times as big. And with all this, there was something partly human about them, too. Luckily for Perseus, their faces were completely hidden from him by the posture in which they lay. For had he but looked one instant at them, he would have fallen heavily out of the air, an image of senseless stone. Now, whispered Quicksilver, as he hovered by the side of Perseus, now is your time to do the deed. Be quick, for if one of the Gorgons should awake, you are too late. Which shall I strike at? asked Perseus, drawing his sword and descending a little lower. They all three look alike. All three have snaky locks. Which of the three is Medusa? It must be understood that Medusa was the only one of these dragon monsters whose head Perseus could possibly cut off. As for the other two, let him have the sharpest sword that was ever forged, and he might have hacked away by the hour together without doing them the least harm. Be cautious, said the calm voice which had spoken to him. One of the gorgons is stirring in her sleep and is just about to turn over. That is Medusa. Do not look at her. The sight would turn you to stone. Look at the reflection of her face and figure in the bright mirror of your shield. Perseus now understood Quicksilver's motive for so earnestly exhorting him to polish his shield. In its surface he could safely look at the reflection of the Gorgon's face. And there it was, that terrible countenance, mirrored in the brightness of the shield, with the moonlight falling over it and displaying all its horror. The snakes, whose venomous natures could not altogether sleep, kept twisting themselves over the forehead. It was the fiercest and most horrible face that ever was seen or imagined, and yet with a strange, fearful, and savage kind of beauty to it. The eyes were closed, and the gorgon was still in a deep slumber, but there was an unquiet expression disturbing her features, as if the monster was troubled with an ugly dream. She gnashed her white tusks and dug into the sand with her brazen claws, the snakes, too, seemed to feel the Medusa's dream and to be made more restless by it. They twined themselves into tumultuous knots, writhed fiercely and uplifted a hundred hissing heads without opening their eyes. Now, now, whispered Quicksilver, who was growing impatient, make a dash at the monster. But be calm, said the grave, melodious voice at the young man's side. 
look in your shield as you fly downward and take care that you do not miss your first stroke. Perseus flew cautiously downward, still keeping his eyes on Medusa's face as reflected in his shield. The nearer he came, the more terrible did the snaky visage and metallic body of the monster grow. At last, when he found himself hovering over her with an arm's length, Perseus uplifted his sword, while at the same instant, each separate snake upon the gorgon's head stretched threateningly upward, and Medusa unclosed her eyes. But she awoke too late. The sword was sharp, the stroke fell like a lightning flash, and the head of the wicked Medusa tumbled from her body. Admirably done, cried Quicksilver. Make haste and clap the head into your magic wallet. To the astonishment of Perseus, the small embroidered wallet, which he had hung about his neck and which had hitherto been no bigger than a purse, grew all at once large enough to contain Medusa's head. As quick as thought, he snatched it up with the snake still writhing upon it and thrust it in. Your task is done, said the calm voice. Now fly, for the other gorgons will do their utmost to take vengeance for Medusa's death. It was indeed necessary to take flight, for Perseus had not done the deed so quietly, but that the clash of his sword, and the hissing of the snakes, and the thump of Medusa's head as it tumbled upon the sea-beaten sand, awoke the two other monsters. There they sat, for an instant, sleepily rubbing their eyes with their brazen fingers, while all the snakes on their heads reared themselves on end with surprise and with venomous malice against they knew not what. But when the gorgon saw the scaly carcass of Medusa, headless, and her golden wings all ruffled and half spread out on the sand, it was really awful to hear what yells and screeches they set up. And then the snakes, they sent forth a hundredfold hiss with one consent, and Medusa's snakes answered them out of the magic wallet. No sooner were the gorgons broad awake than they hurtled upward into the air, brandishing their brass talons, gnashing their horrible tusks, and flapping their huge wings so wildly that some of the golden feathers were shaken out and floated down upon the shore. And there, perhaps, those very feathers lie scattered till this day. Up rose the gorgons, as I tell you, staring horribly about in hopes of turning somebody to stone. And Perseus looked them in the face, or had he fallen into their clutches, his poor mother would never have kissed her boy again. But he took good care to turn his eyes another way, and as he wore the helmet of invisibility, the Gorgons knew not what direction to follow him, nor did he fail to make the best use of the winged slippers by soaring upward a perpendicular mile or so. At that height, when the screams of these abominable creatures sounded faintly beneath him, he made a straight course for the island of the Serapis in order to carry Medusa's head to King Polydectes 
I have no time to tell you of several marvelous things that befell Perseus on his way homeward, such as his killing a hideous sea monster, just as it was on the point of devouring a beautiful maiden, nor how he changed an enormous giant into a mountain of stone, merely by showing him the head of the gorgon. If you doubt this latter story, you may make a voyage to Africa some day or another and see the very mountain which is still known by the ancient giant's name. Finally, our brave Perseus arrived at the island where he expected to see his dear mother. But during his absence, the wicked king had treated Danae so very ill that she was compelled to make her escape and had taken refuge in a temple where some good old priests were extremely kind to her. These praiseworthy priests and the kind-hearted fishermen who had first shown hospitality to Danae and little Perseus when he found them afloat in the chest seemed to have been the only person on the island who cared about doing right. All the rest of the people, as well as King Polydectes himself, were remarkably ill-behaved and deserved no better destiny than that which was now to happen. Not finding his mother at home, Perseus went straight to the palace and was immediately ushered into the presence of the king. Polydectes was by no means rejoiced to see him, for he had felt almost certain in his own evil mind that the Gorgons would have torn the poor young man to pieces and have eaten him up out of the way. However, seeing him safely return, he put the best face he could upon the matter and asked Perseus how he had succeeded. Have you performed your promise? inquired he. Have you brought me the head of Medusa with the snaky locks? If not, young man, it will cost you dear, for I must have a bridal present for the beautiful Princess Hippodamia, and there is nothing else that she would admire so much. Yes, please, your majesty, answered Perseus in a quiet way, as if it were no very wonderful deed for such a young man as he to perform. I have brought you the gorgon's head, snaky locks and all. Indeed, pray, let me see it, quoth King Palidectes. It must be a very curious spectacle, if all that travelers tell about it be true. Your majesty is in the right, replied Perseus. It really is an object that will be pretty certain to fix the regards of all who look at it. And if your majesty think fit, I would suggest that a holiday be proclaimed, that all your majesty's subjects be summoned to behold this wonderful curiosity. Few of them, I imagine, have seen a gorgon's head before, and perhaps never may again. The king well knew that his subjects were an idle set of reprobates and very fond of sightseeing, as idle persons usually are. So he took the young man's advice and sent out heralds and messengers in all directions to blow the trumpet at the street corners and in the marketplaces and wherever two roads met and summon everybody to court. Thither accordingly came a great multitude of good-for-nothing vagabonds all of whom, out of pure love of mischief, would have been glad if Perseus had met with some ill hap in his encounter with the Gorgons. If 
there were any better people in the island, as I really hope there may have been, although the story tells nothing about any such. They stayed quietly at home, minding their business and taking care of their little children. Most of the inhabitants, at all events, ran as fast as they could to the palace and shoved and pushed and elbowed one another in their eagerness to get near a balcony on which Perseus showed himself holding the embroidered wallet in his hand. On a platform, within full view of the balcony, sat the mighty King Polydectes amid his evil counselors and with his flattering courtiers in a semicircle round about him. Monarch, counselors, courtiers, and subjects all gazed eagerly towards Perseus. Show us the head, show us the head, shouted the people, and there was a fierceness in their cry as if they would tear Perseus to pieces unless he should satisfy them with what he had to show. Show us the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. A feeling of sorrow and pity came over the youthful Perseus. O oh, King Polydectes, cried he, and ye many people, I am very loath to show you the gorgon's head. Ah, the villain and coward, yelled the people more fiercely than before. He is making a game of us. He has no gorgon's head. Show us the head if you have it. We will take your own head for a football. Evil counselors whispered bad advice in the king's ear. The courtiers murmured. With one instant, that Perseus had shown disrespect to their loyal lord and master, and the great king Polydectes himself waved his hand and ordered him with the stern, deep voice of authority on his peril to produce the head. Show me the gorgon's head, or I will cut off your own. And Perseus sighed. This instant, repeated Polydectes, or you die. Behold it then, cried Perseus in a voice like the blast of a trumpet. And suddenly, holding up the head, not an eyelid had time to wink before the wicked king Polydectes, his evil counselors, and all his fierce subjects were no longer anything but mere images of a monarch and his people. They were all fixed forever in the look and attitude of that moment. At the first glimpse of the terrible head of Medusa, they whitened into marvel. And Perseus thrust the head back into his wallet and went to tell his dear mother that she need no longer be afraid of the wicked king, Polydectes. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.